0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on December 19, 2018, addressing the new proposed BEAT regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Mike DeFranzo and Alex Velasco, both PwC tax partners in our International Tax Services practice, Kartika Singh, a PwC tax partner in our Transfer Pricing practice, and Eileen Scott, a Managing Director in our International Tax Services Practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists, providing a general overview of the proposed BEAT regulations, the top key observations of the proposed regulations, the aggregate group provisions, and what constitute base erosion payments. Have a listen.
1: Okay, with that, the regulations themselves, just quickly to push through uh, some background on them. They were released last Thursday on December 13th, that is the same day they came out of OIRA. Um, that is, if you're looking at it, kind of unusual. Generally we see the release from OIRA and then we see a three to four day lag as they work with the federal liaison, federal register liaison for the release of the regs. The background on that is there was a big panel the next day at the GW, I, GW IRS conference where there are some government speakers who are very eager to talk about the regulations. So when you actually look at the regulations, there is a header on top that says these regulations are being released in advance of OIRA uh, approval. They may change. The interesting thing is, though, they were released out of OIRA that day, and so don't expect too many changes. There might be some comments that are moved here and there before they're in the Federal Register, but that's about it. The proposed regulations provide uh, much-needed guidance uh, related to the BEAT rules, and then they cover some targeted areas. They cover financial services space, uh, which is banks, um, uh, securities, uh, dealers, and insurance companies, consolidated groups, partnerships. And I think that's where the complexity comes in. We will get through uh, the, the regulations today and try to hit some high points. There's a lot in here. Overall, I can say a great thing about the regulations, they were under 200 pages, and I think they were fairly clearly written. And so we were able to uh, put this panel together pretty quickly, and I think it's thanks to those regs being in good shape. Okay, with that, we will move to our key observations in the top 10. I'll turn to you, Alex, to start.
2: Thanks, Mike. Uh, so the, the first um, five out of the top 10 observations. Number one, transactions must be evaluated on a gross basis. Uh, not a surprise there. This does underscore the, um, the data intensity and just the burdens on the companies to try to unbundle, understand these various intercompany transactions, and evaluate each. The rules are explicit that no netting is allowed unless otherwise specifically permitted under some other section of the code or the regulations. Observation number two um, determination of base routing payments is made under federal tax principles, so no specific rules just for bid purposes. Um, again, something that Uh, most of us anticipate it. It's very helpful to see it clearly addressed, uh, certainly in the preamble to the regs. So that means things that are, for example, capitalizable in the cost of goods sold, or we'll talk uh, some about certain limited instances where some unnetting might be possible. All those things are typically dealt with uh, elsewhere in the code in the regs, and that's how it'll remain for beat purposes. Number three, payment is very broadly defined to capture a variety of just transactions in general, so cash uh, paid, amounts accrued, assumption of liability, um, as well as a variety of non-recognition transactions. Uh, and it was some very interesting language in the preamble talking about you know, how certain transactions may give rise to quote unquote payment, even though um, the, there's some debate whether that's actually how the settled law certain types of transactions. So expect some comments in that area. Um, number four. Very helpful clarification of the services cost method exception that Kodiki will walk us through. Uh, and number five is NOLs. NOLs are subject to tracking, basically layering, under the so-called vintage year approach. Uh, the NOLs that are arising pre-effective date of the of the bead provision would generally have zero base erosion base erosion percentage. Um, and um, importantly, regulations. Uh, clearly state that the NOLs will not reduce modified taxable income below zero, uh, which I think may catch some um, taxpayers by surprise. So that's the top five out of top ten. Okay. And then
3: just uh, moving along with our with our six through ten, um, there is an aggregate approach to the treatment of partnerships. Uh, that was one of the points that was um, very that was uh, an open question, and there was a lot of debate. about that, so that's something that's answered in these proposed regulations. Um, Number seven, there had been some guidance earlier in the year under Section 163J uh, that had indicated that any amount that's carried forward from old Section 163J um, into into the the new 163J would be treated, if it was carried forward and allowed in in the current year, it would be treated as a base eroding payment, and uh, the proposed regulations reverse that approach um, and and say that it would not be treated as a base rating payment. So that's a helpful um, a Helpful change there uh, number eight uh, Fiscal year taxpayers would be using a blended rate in calculating the beat amount. So following uh, section 15 and Number nine there's clarification here on the scope of the anti-abuse rule uh, And it's it's basically there's three basically three categories or they're still fairly broad categories with three categories um, of anti, you know, anti-abuse rule uh, transactions that the anti-abuse rule are intended to um, to address, and then the final point, the uh, for the purposes of computing uh, modified taxable income, the proposed regulations use an add-back method rather than a recomputation method. Something like what the you know the old uh, AMT had used a recomputation method. The add-back method is. Um, you know decidedly simp- simpler method, um, but I guess there's some question about whether that's actually um, going to be the the uh, Most favorable for the for, for some taxpayers.
1: Okay. Thanks, Eileen. Okay, so moving on to the uh, The applicable taxpayer um, provisions and the aggregate group. Uh, what is the aggregate group Cardi K?
4: Yeah, so so the um the, the aggregate group concept and the aggregation principles in the proposed regulations generally are consistent with the statute. And um, recall that for a taxpayer to be, drawn, to be potentially drawn into BEAT, uh, it, has to, it has to satisfy two threshold tests. One is the, the gross receipts test, which is effectively um, if the average annual gross receipts um, over the three years preceding the current taxable year exceed um, 500 million, and then the second threshold test is the um, the base erosion percentage test, which is if the ratio of your base erosion tax benefits um, to the overall specified deductions, which include the base erosion tax benefits, uh, exceed three percent, two percent for banks and uh, securities dealers. Right? Um, the 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 aggregate uh, group rule or provision basically says that in order to perform those tests uh, they they need to be performed at the aggregate group level for each taxpayer. Um, And in turn the aggregate group is defined as the control group of corporations by reference to section 1563A with two differences. Uh, One, um, uh, the threshold of more than 50% replaces at least 80%, and second, Uh, The aggregate group generally excludes foreign corporations, except and specifically to the extent uh, that uh, the foreign corporation has income effectively connected with a U.S. trade or business or has net income that is included in the U.S. tax base uh, via uh, a U.S. income tax treaty uh, through the P.E. route. Uh, So important implications in terms of, um, uh, like I said, the quantification of the two ratios. Transactions and dealings between members of the aggregate group are disregarded. Uh, So gross receipts um, uh, uh, that stem from those uh, intercompany dealings are not factored into that ratio. Similarly, deductions that may come about from payments uh, made by one group member to another uh, are are not uh, taken into consideration. And and the import is actually broader than just the impact on the ratios because um, it also preempts Possible transactions between aggregate group members that, well, that that taxpayers could have attempted to to to, to um, avoid or eliminate what otherwise would have been a base erosion uh, tax benefit. So there's a there's an example in the guidance on what is a base erosion payment and what is a base erosion uh, tax benefit, where let's say you have two U.S. corporations that are part of the aggregate group and you have a foreign parent. Um, the first U.S. sub imports, you know, buys a uh, depreciable property, which clearly is a base erosion payment, but in year two, sells that very same depreciable property to its um, uh, affiliate, the U.S. affiliate that's part of the same aggregate group. Well, that payment, that second payment, clearly is not a base erosion payment. It's not made to a foreign-related person. Uh, but, uh, but, but the disregarding of that transaction and, and there's an example in the regs that clearly spells this out, means that that tax attribute, the base erosion tax benefit, is transferred one for one uh, between that first affiliate and the second affiliate as part of the same group. So uh, net net, generally consistent uh, with the statute. Uh, so not really surprising, but but important in terms of something that Alex mentioned earlier in terms of uh, you know record keeping data intensity, et cetera, because these computations need to be done for the
1: whole group. So just one observation on this. I mean, I think the statute was targeted at multinationals where you might split up consolidated groups under common ownership, (laughs) but you may then have payments going between each, you know, the the entities. But it also applies to private equity. Um, If you've got that common ownership and you cross those thresholds and they've set the thresholds, you know, pretty high, but certainly you can in... Uh, private equity situations have that common ownership if one group is is in beat and that can spill over and have cause another to be in because you have to start aggregating so even in the passive investor situation even if you're not really actively doing something you can fall into these rules that's a great point yeah okay so the base erosion payments you already hinted at it so i mean what what, what are they
3: so, the base erosion payments um, a base erosion payment there's four categories of base erosion payments that are defined um, the first is any uh, amount that's paid or accrued that's um, uh, for which a deduction is allowable. The second category are um, payments or accruals that are made in connection with the acquisition of depreciable property um, Third category is. Uh, payments related to certain certain payments related to reinsurance premiums um, uh, by by insurance companies, and the fourth category are payments or, or, or uh, payments that that result in a reduction of gross receipts if they're made in connection with um, surrogate foreign corporations or companies that are related to surrogate foreign corporations. So those are the four categories that comprise the definition of a, a base erosion payment.
1: And I would then ask about non-recognition transactions. So non-recognition transactions are also covered.
3: So non-recognition. So the uh, the discussion in the preamble clarifies that a non-cash payment, such as uh, such as stock, by a taxpayer to a foreign related party, can be a base erosion payment. Even if it's incurred in a non-recognition transaction. And so they give an example they give a few examples of the types of transactions that they're thinking about here, where you've got a, a non-cash payment. So, for example, a, a domestic corporation acquires depreciable assets from a foreign-related party in a transaction that qualifies for non-recognition treatment, like a Section 351 transaction, a 332 liquidation, or a 368 reorganization. Um, And the preamble discusses a bit of the the thinking behind uh, behind the the inclusion of those non-recognition transactions because they say the base erosion payment arises from the uh, importation of the basis And so that's where they distinguish. Then they give another example of an in-kind distribution um, under Section 301 that doesn't give rise to a base erosion payment because they say there's no consideration that's provided by the taxpayer and so there's been no payment or accrual. So the proposed regulations make that distinction. Okay, exclusions. uh, From the the definition of what constitutes there are a number of items that are that are, that are are listed as things that are excluded from the definition of a base erosion payment, and a couple of them are shown here, and we'll be discussing later a few of the others. Um, but in general, a base erosion payment does include a payment that's made to a foreign-related party if it results in a recognized loss, and they give an example of a, a loss that's recognized on the transfer of property to a foreign-related party. Um, but then... Uh, Section 988 transactions that give rise to a loss. So, if if there is a Section 988 transaction that results in a foreign currency loss, if it's resulting from a payment or an accrual by the taxpayer to a foreign related party, that uh, Section 988 loss is excluded from the definition of a base erosion payment. So, even if it is made to a uh, party. It's not included in the definition of a base erosion payment. Um, so it's um, a foreign currency loss under section 988 is excluded from the numerator in the base erosion fraction. Um, and then they are, those losses are also excluded from the denominator of the base erosion percentage fraction. Um, and then the preamble dis- d- discusses that there are uh, Treasury is is looking for comments in particular on whether, when we're talking about excluding Section 988 losses from the denominator of the base erosion percentage calculation, whether that should only refer to um, transactions that that occur with foreign-related parties, because currently any Section 988 loss is excluded from the denominator of the fraction. Um, and then a second category of exclusions from the definition of base erosion payment um, is payments that are um, taxable to their foreign recipients as effectively connected income. Um, so if you've got a uh, you know a, a taxpayer that is making a payment, a deduct, you know, deductible payment to a foreign related party, if if that payment is subject to tax as effectively connected income or as Know, net income subject to U.S. tax under a treaty, then it is not included in the definition of a base erosion payment. There, There is, however, a requirement that the payor receive a withholding certificate from the payee in order for that exception to apply a withholding certificate that says that it's um, associated with uh, with effectively connected income and not subject to withholding.
1: You know, one of the things I didn't point out at the beginning is i we've got Two economists at the end of the table here. Um, and so when you look at the, this rule and the, the way it's sort of policing uh, what what's happening um, in structuring, generally, I would suspect that having assets come into the US is, at least from a US economic policy perspective, probably a good thing. Having IP <clears throat> come in, having other hard assets come in. However, when you have depreciable or amortizable assets come in, you can then offset taxable income. And so there's a little bit of tension here in the, the the BEAT rules are looking at the acquisition of property and then putting that into the, the, the calculation of BEAT because they don't want that importation of that deduction. And I think the tension is probably coming from the 163J rules, that our 163J rules have tightened up and therefore there's a, there was a worry, and maybe there was a worry even with, with them being tighter that you know we've got to we've got to police some of this space erosion that's going on. So it's fascinating what went on on the hill when they're really considering this provision.
4: It, it is, and I think you you hit the nail on the head in terms of the tension. Right on the one hand, um, the intent of any U.S. centered policy um, is going to be around maximizing economic activity, um, um, you know, productive economic activity, creation of jobs, etc. And to that end, one would think that right. Exactly, as you said, to have productive assets in the U.S., you know, higher productive assets and more, other things equal is a good, is a worthwhile uh, policy goal. But that is uh, counterbalanced to a certain extent, perceived um, base erosion, right, Right. through through artificial, um, or, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, artificial transactions, inflated transactions, and so on and so forth. So... Um, Alex used this term early on, which is, you know, the beat being a really blunt instrument. It really is. Um, It takes that goal of um, avoiding and preempting, you know, this this base erosion through this very blunt instrument, but it, like all policy choices, it can certainly have consequences beyond the intended objective, and uh, it may very well have spillovers on the kind of stuff that you're saying in terms of maximizing productive activity
2: here in the U.S., or at least eat into that goal a little bit. Or eat into it. Or,
1: and, or it'll only happen with the cost
2: of the right. you know, loss of the deduction. And I'm not an economist, but it seems like um, the rules in the beat provision is yet another reason why many taxpayers will really ponder very hard whether to onshore any of these economically significant you know assets or activities into the U.S. where they had a lot of you know, thorny issues arising from the guilty rules, sure. right? You have to trigger that gain, even if you were trying to bring the assets in, which would be guilty, which will exacerbate foreign tax credit issues. And then also the uh, the QBI provision on the FDI yeah. rule as well is another reason why uh, it, it's really not a straightforward calculus at yeah. all.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the speakers. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank <music> you.